Welcome to Comedy vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. Uh, I'm still yawning. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The year just so happens to be 1982 that we're finishing up here. And the machine, you know, still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film, My Favorite Year. It was 1954. Television was live. And Benji Stone landed the job of his dreams as a TV comedy writer. Alice, what are we seeing? Alan Swan's movies. It was the year Hollywood's greatest hero swashbuckled his way onto live TV and into Benji's life. He's blasted. Good God, it's Renfield. I thought he was dead. Swan better be at every rehearsal sober or it's your neck. They've asked me to stay with you and help you over some of the rough spots. Like showing up. That's one. Another is not passing out. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show since the machine, you know, doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there for a Christmas present we are giving to you, Silence, the Japanese film from 1971. I gotta find time to watch that too. That another three-hour film? I think it's only two. Clearly, I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> now, before we get into talking about this week's film, one of the things that people love tuning into this podcast for each and every week is our intricate and deep-rooted fiction that takes place each and every week. Dave, I feel I, I, we've been hurling through space here. We're surrounded I by we were a bunch in the of bayou. Wait, what happened between the swamp and space? You tell me, Dave. <laughs> you tell me because apparently you've been paying so much attention to yeah, this deep nothing. fiction that we've been providing there's a button there's a button you pushed i pushed it you did yeah how'd that go <laughs> it's hurtling us through time and space once again in a cabin uh, okay it, it's basically like that scene in star wars where the where the stars go really long and bright so we're hurling mm-hmm. through space we're surrounded by a bunch of chickens for some reason we haven't quite explained all that. Um, but I feel like we're starting to slow down. I think we're like getting into mm, approaching our destination approaching our destination here mm. very, very soon. And I'm sure that Dee Dee Hess will make uh, one final appearance before the she season is, is out. She is following us at light speed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, or she's a stowaway. Maybe she's a stowaway, Dave. Let's spitball some ideas here on air. I mean, it's just a room. Where could she be hiding? In that box? And the box is hardly large enough to fit a human being. Wait a minute. How would I have been her this entire time? And I oh, ripped off my face mask. face off. Mm-hmm. Nice. All of this is so stupid. There's also some feedback Ooh, I like to read. Love some good criticism. I think Brian has written in here before, uh, but he reached out to me on my personal Instagram. Didn't even write into like the... <laughs> just upset. You fucking asshole. Actually, he's upset with you, Dave. So this is why I'm reading it out <laughs> on air. I'm used to it. On our last episode, we talked for like 30 minutes about okay. the best little whorehouse in Texas and oh, okay. 79 okay. minutes about the sight and sound pool. At least that's what it felt like. <laughs> I'm basically crunching down and paraphrasing a lot of what he wrote about. But in essence, it was like, I agree with Dave that the idea of a list of films that are supposed to be considered the best of all time is dumb. Okay. But... What got me annoyed is that Dave conflated the fact that films that weren't on his personal list didn't show up on the list, and that is why the list was bad. So I wanted oh, to see okay, if okay. you wanted to uh, respond to this criticism. Uh, 
I mean, I, I don't listen. I am the one who edits these podcasts together, so I can say whether you meant that or not, that is kind of what it comes down to, or what it sounded like you were wrapping up your point yeah. as, as being, where it's like, my my favorite movie of all time is not Susan Kane, and it shows up in the top 10, therefore this list is bad. That's kind of how you finished your argument. I wouldn't say that people have to agree with my list per se, I, I, or I should say, it's not that my list is the right list. I think my point maybe was that no list could be the right list, because gotcha. I have my own list. But, you know, just to respond to the criticism, I mean, I think maybe the broader problem with any dialogue about list is exactly this. I, you know, I have an inherent bias because I have what I like to call taste uh, <laughs> in whatever entertains me. Mm -hmm. And so it's impossible for us to actually agree on a, you know, like even the sight and sound poll will be uh, an aggregate score, right? It's not like mm -hmm. every critic thinks, uh, I don't even remember the name. Yeah, that uh, film, 20, what is it called? 22 Days? And, Eugene no, Dillman and then it's an oh, address. Oh, her address, right, right. Uh, is the number one pick of every single critic alive. I mean, that's not how that poll works. So, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I didn't mean, I suppose, to say that people need to agree with me. I guess my broader point was that we can't agree anyways, and how do we, uh, I think you agree with me on this one point, how do we explain that there are no comedies in a top 10 list right. ever, which doesn't make any sense from an entertainment perspective. I also have a bias against modern criticism, where I think people are puffed up and trying to look more intelligent than they are. Right, so. but you, like your idea of modern criticism is like from 15 years ago. Like what critics do you actually read? No, I'm just, I read the, when I go on Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes and they give you the blurbs, I don't read oh, okay. their essays, but when I read the uh, synopses, I don't know if they write them themselves or some robot no, that's, uh, summarizes that's an AI. them, uh, and they're needlessly verbose and trying so hard, so hard, Kyle, to demonstrate how intellectual they are in how they read a film. I'm dumb, so when I watch a movie, I don't try to think about historical context of every film in that genre before. I just try to watch a film. You know this. And then mm -hmm. uh, when I have a bias, it appears in my opinion, which is fine. There are so many movies that are so fucking depressing that are allotted by critics, right? I don't right. know why. I don't yeah, know why. No, I mean, I think the broader point is that I think we, I was mentioning this before we talked about the sight and sound pool that I kind of get somewhat annoyed even with top 10 lists at the end of the year, which I, I like to go through. Or the Oscars. Which yeah. is... Rarely comedies, rarely horror, and rarely genre films. Like, it's kind of a one-note type of list. Like, kind of depressing, morose. I think this think there's more to film than just that one type of movie. Um, I still contend, though, that the best thing that can happen, how I normally use lists from people that I like, oh, I haven't heard of this movie. Cool, it's showing up on your list. I'm going to try and check this out when I have sure. the time. That's basically how I use lists at this, at this juncture of my life. At any rate, I think the criticism is fair enough. Like all spoken language, my intent and how I express it are going to be two divergent things, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, so I apologize. I didn't want anyone to think that I was always right, even when I am. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> let's get into some comedy, Dave. We're going to talk about some comedy. Comedy. Right, so that's a film where I'm supposed to laugh. Is mm -hmm. that right? Well, you love to do this all the time. Just because you don't laugh, Dave, doesn't mean that the movie is not a comedy. <laughs> no, it's a comedy. It's a comedy. It's written as a comedy. That yeah. being said, uh, we are talking about my favorite year. And I think we should uh, talk about some of our feelings and backstory with some of the people involved. So first and foremost, Peter O'Toole mm. is one of the stars Lawrence. of this film. Yeah, it's Mr. Lawrence of Arabia. Famously, 
Never won an Academy Award, even though he was nominated 10 times or something crazy yeah, like that. He matches Glenn Close or something, right? Yeah. yeah so far. I'm sure she'll get another snub soon. <laughs> sure. Uh, to be fair, to be ultimately fair, the last two Glenn Close nominations were kind of bullshit. But that's beside the point. Just trying their best to They're get They're trying one. so hard to give it to her. And it's like, no, you have to give it to a, a good movie. So uh, I I think Peter Toole's charismatic. He obviously has, he obviously has this... What do you want to call it? Like uh, personality, <laughs> this oh, yeah. uh, this legend around his uh, debauchery and his lifestyle, or whatever you want to call Absolutely. it, uh, that follows him around. But as an actor, anything I've seen him in, including let's say I've already watched this film, uh, he is so charismatic, and he's a proper old school Shakespearean actor. So For sure. I feel like, you know, he's got that pedigree. It is amazing, according to legend, he's never sober. Although, looking into it, he was also exceptionally sick, which I actually didn't know. So, oh, um, with what? Yeah, I didn't know much about the stomach cancer and all this stuff that oh. uh, he battled through in the 70s. And it's one of the reasons oh. why in the 80s, he looked so emaciated. He actually removed parts of his stomach. And in the end, that's what got him in the 2000s. I mean, to live the life he uh, allegedly lived to work through stomach cancer, c continue to drink, and still live for another about twenty years after this film is uh, mm -hmm. this man had the will. He's uh, he's an interesting guy. I he's think. an interesting guy. I mean, I have to be very truthful. I don't. I think Lawrence of Arabia is the only other film I've ever watched him in. Yeah. I don't know if I can tell you if I've seen him in any other movie or not. Oh, uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I know is like one of the other famous ones, but I have not seen that. He has a very famous appearance on the Letterman show where he came out on a camel, which I remember back in the day as a kid. <laughs> For I don't know, I don't know what he was promoting, but he came. Maybe it was like a Lawrence of Arabia re-release or something. Anyways, he did come out on a camel. <laughs> I vividly remember that. I'm surprised to learn he was nominated for this film, but we'll talk about that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> this might be the Glenn Close thing, too, a little bit, which is like, hey, you've battled cancer. This is a pretty cool or a pretty fun role. For whatever reason, this year in particular, the Oscars really nominated a bunch of comedic performances which i actually do want to commend mm. them for because there's this one best supporting actor from whorehouse last week from the guy who does his little song and dance number right uh that's uh, not in tootsie and tootsie but uh, uh terry gar from tootsie terry as well gar. like right. so they were nominated a bunch of comedic yeah. performances this year which actually doesn't happen all that often a it's lot. like a once in a blue moon that happens nowadays where a straight-up comedic performance is, is nominated. Did Peter Toole get nominated for comedy or for his drama in this? But, well, yeah, keep going. Keep going. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but what I'm saying is that from his um, battling stomach cancer in the 70s, maybe this is them being like, oh, this is a good enough role. It's time. For us to yeah. nominate you again and maybe win. But and Gandhi came out, Dave, and I'm sorry. <laughs> it's Gandhi, yeah. so. I mean, yeah. Is this a weird time to say that I own a camel? Dave, what's your history with Perfect Strangers? <laughs> <laughs> I grew up watching Perfect Strangers, right? I mean, Balti Bartakamus. Hey, TGIF, man. It was this, Family Matters, and Step by Step, I think, all came out on Friday nights. Family Matters for sure, but mm -hmm. I have no actual adult functioning memory of that show. Although it's an 80s sitcom, so it's probably what? exactly Perfect the same. Strangers? Yeah. So, I know I watched a lot of it, and I know it's a situational comedy with, uh, where's Balki from? Some fictional European country? Fictional, basically, Greek island of Mipos. 
Meepos, right. And then aside from that, I don't remember any plot point. I don't remember no. any gags. I don't remember anything that happened in it because it's an 80s sitcom. They usually got into shenanigans. Their two yeah. girlfriends lived in the apartment upstairs or downstairs, whatever. I can't remember. Largely based on Balky not understanding English is Correct. the whole gag. Yeah. The now kind of forgotten fact is that Family Matters is technically a spinoff of Perfect Strangers. Why? Uh, because the no. mother works in the same office as... Um, Larry? Uh, Larry, as Larry yeah. does. So she shows up in like the first season and then they spun her off into Family Matters where she doesn't really <laughs> make She's that big of an show. impact, right. I don't think. And then Urkel took over. So Yeah, yeah. the Urkel show. Although he, he had some personality problems too, didn't he? Jillian Wife. Yeah, well, he really tried to break away from the Urkel character. Yeah. That's such a Didn't weird work. confluence of things because that show, Family Matters, started off as trying to basically be, and I don't know, like Full House, but yeah. with, of course, like a black family. So like heartwarming stories. Urkel showed up as a guest star in one episode and people lost their minds. And they're like, oh, I guess we'll just make the show about this character that we had no Did intention of becoming a longtime character on the show. So. <laughs> 80 sitcoms, baby. I know. To this day, I know there's a lot of options in the running, but if we're just limiting it to 80s theme songs, is my all-time top favorite. I oh, love the theme song to Perfect Strangers. <laughs> I think it totally slaps. It's so oh, good. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's how I'd describe it. Slaps, baby. It slaps, baby. <laughs> Dave, do you have any history with this movie whatsoever? No, I've never heard of it. The only sort of little foothold it has in my mind is I that- I said foothold, and I'm like, that's no. disgusting. That's just, that's offensive. Yeah. This movie was attempted to be adapted as a Broadway musical in the early 90s, I think it was. Mistake. And yeah. it uh, failed miserably, mostly not because of the actual subject matter in this, which we'll get to, but the songwriting team- Basically made a lot of the songs like super serious, which does not fit the tone mm. of most of this. And so that's what all the critics mentioned at the time of it. Like the tone of the songs and the plot do not mesh together mm. whatsoever. They were enamored by Peter O'Toole's performance rather than Possibly. the story itself. Yeah. I, I think I have a very different opinion about, <laughs> about this movie yeah, than you I do. Just, I fell asleep, so I don't know. Okay. Maybe it's just me. Well, let's do this, Dave. We've whetted the people's appetite, I'm sure, so much for our discussion on My Favorite Year. But we're going to take a break. We'll thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Peter O'Toole and Cousin Larry. Just a quick note. I'm on Wikipedia. Peter O'Toole's last Oscar nomination. 2006, mm -hmm. he's up against Blood Diamond. Mm -hmm. King of Last King of Scotland in Pursuit of Happiness. That's longevity. That dude oh, must sure. have been. At the end of his life in 2006, right? But he, he, I think he got the Lifetime Achievement Oscar either the year after or the year before. I can't, no, I can't that's remember. Amazing. Let's move on. Let's read some ads. What is your favorite year, Dave? Oh, I don't know. I, you know what? I think when we did our first season, it was probably 1999. That was you at your zenith? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, psychologically probably not, but culturally... You know, it was just before our pandemic of 9-11 and uh, I was an, a full-fledged adult in age, although not maturity. And it was one of the best years in film in my life. So, I had a lot of fun that year. So, I'm going to go with 1999. What about you, Kyle? And why is it this year? Because you just watch Avatar, The Way of Water. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and honestly, 2022, because I got to go and see Avatar, The Way of Water. <laughs> A life-changing experience. Dave, I had I have to hold to my you, breath though, for seven minutes. There was, yes, yeah, Sigourney Weaver learned how to do it. There was a moment in that Avatar movie. I don't pretend that it's like this great magnum opus. However, 
there was a moment where like did they did they make this alien whale creation because i literally cannot tell that this is a digital creation uh, it's like so mind-blowing at this one point I'm like i know it's not real but man does it look real right now it's so annoying, weird annoying james cameron it probably was a whale that they yeah. just added something stringy coming off of its butt but uh, <laughs> have you did you read the article of like how you learn to hold your breath seven minutes underwater i did not read it although i know that sigourney we i listened to sigourney weaver talk about it slightly and she's like yeah it sucked <laughs> but yeah she learned like, how to do it the basically the premise you is have to teach yourself not to be afraid of dying death. in water basically that's right yeah right? you keep pushing the limit because apparently mm -hmm. you start thinking you're gonna die and you have 20 percent reserve of oxygen left mm -hmm. in your body and the training is like let's use that 20 percent <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> fuck that apparently kate winslet was the master at it like she seven. totally i yeah. saw seven something minutes you know honestly the other thing is there's gonna be long-term side effects to that oh god yeah right you can't do oxygen deprivation at that level without becoming oh i thought you weird. meant working with james cameron yes of course yeah same same <laughs> arnold was never the same after he became the terminator that's right i'm like my, my wish is that avatar 4 or something just brings in arnold and leo and like everyone that he's ever worked with it's like if anyone could do a correct deep fake and make arnold terminator <laughs> again it would be james yeah. cameron uh well colin dave versus the machine is a proud member of the alberta podcast network locally grown community supported the alberta podcast network promotes and supports alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with alberta based businesses and organizations this episode of Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. You know, Dave, as we're recording this, it is four days before the start of, of winter, officially. So winter is coming, and energy well, usage for all Albertans. here, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing. So now is a great time for listeners to look at their utility bills and ensure that they are on the best plan. Albertans do have a choice who they pay their utility bills to, and Park Power is happy to provide free, no obligations comparisons. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy, and you can feel good knowing that you are supporting a local business, as well as helping to give back to our communities with your utilities bills learn more at parkpower.ca if you don't live in calgary our high today it's gonna to be the warmest day in six days is gonna be minus 17 winter's mm. here Kyle. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so balmy out there let's <laughs> make some snowballs <laughs> our second uh, second sponsor message comes from the alberta blue cross group even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day that's a lot of meetings kyle like more than 24. You are calm. You're collected because your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online anytime on any device, making it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. Well, Dave, we have sat down and watched for the first time my favorite year, and um, I want to know what you think about it, of course. But before we do, let's let's come up with a scenario to describe mm. what this mm. movie is about, yes. plot-wise. Yes, yes, I'm ready. So let's say that it's it's New Year's Eve, okay? And for some reason, I have snatched you from your family. I've convinced you to come out on New Year's Eve. I know that you don't drink, but uh, you're watching me imbibe maybe a little <laughs> bit too much. <laughs> 
And I go. That's all I keep thinking about every day go, is when am I going to watch Kyle imbibe? And then I go full spaghetti man and like I can't like stand up anymore. I'm, I'm completely not lucid. You do have long limbs. Yeah. Oh, I do have long limbs. And as you're wheeling me out, like on a gurney of some a kind. Wheelbarrow. Yeah. yeah the the attendant the the ems attendant? people that, that stop fa- us oh, okay i thought it was like some fancy party it's like right. hey stop stop what's before we can we can help out this man and he takes out from his back pocket a vhs copy of my favorite year what's this movie about how would you describe what I my like, favorite you can year is about you can keep kyle and that video and you can fuck right both off. of them are doa <laughs> if you if you ask me <laughs> uh how would i describe what this movie is about You know, I would say an up-and-coming sketch comedy writer has a chance to hang out with his movie idol, who's a degenerate loser, and they've got to figure it out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And how did that journey go for you, Dave? Oh, so boring, Kyle. This is an (laughs) exceptionally boring movie. I would characterize my problem with this movie this way. It's a 1982 comedy language, which I already don't get, about... A 1950s comedy language. So it's like two levels apart from what I would find funny. Like I, okay, but, you are but, more steeped in like 50s yes. comedy lore. I just don't give a shit, right? And so the characters I thought were boring. The saving grace for me is that whenever Peter O'Toole goes in a scene, he is so magnetic, right? Like yes. there's just something about him. So even when like he's looks super old in this and... And tired. And he's uh, only 50 in this movie, I know. by the way. Well, like, the, <laughs> learning about his health, I understand now why. But but whenever like a young or an old woman or men in this case, uh, because all of the fans are enamored with him and they're doe-eyeing him. And I'm like, yeah, he's got that quality. As soon as mm-hmm. he turns on the dramatic switch, like that last scene when he somehow Swings. beats Larry on the elevator into the hallway from the mm-hmm. inside of his cab. Uh, to do his big uh, dramatic thing about why nobody will understand him. I mean, that's that was some Shakespearean level sure. uh, monologuing. And it elevated that scene way above this piece of crap writing. And it makes the movie sort of watchable in that, uh, in that moment. Um, but the plot doesn't make any sense. The jokes are obnoxious. The characters are 50s buffoonery. Th- this is a movie I was surprised Dom DeLuise was not in. That's the level, right? I was going to say the same thing. I was actually half expecting Dom DeLuise to show up. Who is my favorite actor? Just before I state my opinion, what are are your feelings on Mel Brooks? Are you a Mel Brooks fan then or no? Well, that's the thing. Like, I I thought I was. I mean, I grew up with Spaceballs and Blazing Saddles and all that stuff. But this smacks to me of a Mel Brooks humor, even though he's not credited as a writer. No, he's producer. I'm, I'm starting to find it a little bit tiresome. And I think... Maybe the language of comedy has changed too much. Maybe we're too woke. Maybe we need too much more, you know, character underpinning for some of these gags to work. But like, I, like Larry, I don't know the actor's name. I find him so fucking obnoxious. I cannot comprehend even like him stalking this girl to become her boyfriend up to the point where he's like sweet in this comedy room. I just cannot understand his character. It's like frustrating, actually. I was just like, I can't, I can't handle it. I don't know. I, I mean, you you always bring this up. I think, yeah, may, maybe you're right. Maybe I just have the comedy underpinnings a little bit uh, ingrained in me in that it's over the top for sure. But it's, I like don't know. The character it's of, of the piece, head like, of the writing room. Yeah. Like, did you enjoy? Like some of the gags where he'll 
flip because as soon as he's in front of not Sid Caesar, what's the fake King King, King Kaiser. Kaiser? You know, and he'll like huff and puff, and then as soon as the boss comes in, he'll he'll do his one eighty and become yeah. all like snot nosed. Like, is that still funny? I I don't know. Like, it was just I couldn't. I couldn't get it. It didn't get a chortle out of me. Sure. I, but, but I, mean, I do like, like again, the this bit is... where the mute guy talks through the woman. Those mm. are pretty funny little uh, moments. The tearaway suit. That's so pink pants. They're like, I, I don't know. Yeah, there's yeah. just something about it that I. See, I, I, I okay. I so I think ultimately I'm going to agree with you, but, but for vastly different reasons. Sure. I actually think the bones of this is actually really good. I think that there's a, some great setups. There's some great payoffs. Conceptually. I think there's actually a lot of funny things that are happening. Now, I will admit that my biases show through this because I love stories of old Hollywood. I know about the history of your show of shows. And I understand, like, that's Sid Caesar, that's Mel Brooks, that's this person, that's this person. He's trying to be an Errol Flynn character. So I get all, like, the shorthand of what is actually funny. Um, I love behind-the-scenes stuff. I love movies and TV shows that are basically, like, the making of entertainment and movies and, and that sort of thing those things are just kind of my bread and butter why i think this is ultimately a failure though outside of basically everything that Pierre O'Toole does because i think he kind of saves us from being an outright train wreck yes there's two things that are the problem one that you have identified i think the hard part of trying to explain what this movie is about outside of it being like it's a writer's room in the 50s and they they have a sketch show that they're putting on this movie starts with uh Benji Stone is played by Mark Lynn Baker. That's the uh, cousin Larry. This is me. I'm Benji. I'm working on this show. Boy, do I hope I pull this off and I get the girl. But that's really not what this movie is concerned about after the first scene. So there's really no character arc that happens through this movie. But the more egregious issue that I have is with the direction. For Mel Brooks, I am a big Mel Brooks, I guess we're going to say it, Stan. Young Frankenstein, I still consider to be probably my favorite comedy film of all time. Like, I I love it that much. Like, I love Young Frankenstein. I love Blazing Saddles. I like The Producers. Uh, History of the World Part 1. Like, so much of that stuff is so ingrained in me because I watched it over and over and over again as a kid. Love that kind of stuff. While Mel Brooks was never, like, this virtuoso, like, director as far as, like, setup shots and intricate things like that, he understood if there's a joke on screen, let's show the joke so that people can laugh. This movie was so frustrating to me because so often they didn't show the punchline. It was either like cutting away at the wrong moment or the punchline was being said while someone else was speaking over top of him, like you were going into the control room. And it's like, I don't, why are you doing it this way? It made me, it actually kind of made me upset because it's like, I think you have something good here that you're not allowing the actors to be funny inside of. Are you familiar with the play Noises Off at all? No. Okay. There is actually a movie version of Noises Off that is not great. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know, example of the of the play itself. But by and large, what it is, first act is you see a troop of people rehearsing a farce that they're going to put on, okay? So sometimes they have to redo things. But you basically see, okay, this is how the farce is supposed to go. And you understand the jokes. Then act two happens and everything goes wrong. And you see uh, the person who isn't supposed to be drinking behind stage is now drinking, so he doesn't hit his cue, and then they have to vamp for time. So it's this like layer upon a layer upon a layer of a joke, and so you know what they're supposed to be doing, and then it doesn't happen, so, so they have to cover for it, and then it's this goes- It comes and, and, funny because you, right, it subverts your expectations, okay. This PC has that same setup. It's like, okay, we have this 
the audition, right? This presentation that we need to do, but they don't actually ever show what it's supposed to be. So when it actually fails in the in the second half of the movie, it's like I guess, but I don't know what this is actually supposed to be. Again, I think there's some funny jokes in there and stuff like that. Like the actual punchline of like it's a good thing we're on the second floor when the guy drives through again is spoken over top of and the first time you see it so i wish we just stayed there and seen the jokes happen and then there's other scenes and other examples where i just feel like the camera's always in the wrong place yeah you know it's it's frustrating to me i was thinking when i was watching it and the more we talk about it didn't occur to me at the beginning of the film but as it became clear that this is an homage or um, an obsession with the so-called golden age of live Mm -hmm. television this director has uh, chosen to build this around a probably around a tv camera Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's something so uh 50s television about this film and i think there's a restriction to that and maybe there's an obsession to recreate a, a visual tone that even in the 80s would have felt very old-fashioned. Sure. And so maybe there's, you know, too much of a focus on trying to get that look rather than worrying about whether the story itself comes through mm-hmm. that lens, like both literally and uh, metaphorically. So, yeah, there's just something underwhelming about it. And uh, if Peter O'Toole is not in this film, this is like Razzie-worthy. I, and I don't want to insult the writers like you said there's bits in here we could tell proper comedy minds are at the helm in the writing but like without peter tool's uh, screen magnetism why would it just wouldn't have held up at all there's not a lot of pieces to this movie the only reason people still return to this movie because there are some fans out there (laughs) having read these reviews is like love peter tool like that's that's a resounding thing no one's watching this movie because like oh i love the story of this movie it's like you know you like peter o'toole in the four scenes he's in because he's able to hold this movie together yeah and from and he is good like i do think he is good in this he does everything like when he's uh completely shit-faced it's it's pretty funny when he Mm -hmm. goes full shakespearean drama it's quite compelling he does all of those pieces well but it's also you know stupid and underbaked and and again the larry i don't remember the actor's name i don't think he's strong enough yeah i don't think i've noticed the acting or the writing or a combination of both. I don't want to follow him on this story. Like I find him neurotic and annoying. Well, and yeah, again, that tough. is because so much of that early, well, this is even early Hollywood up until like the early 60s. So much of it was baked into Yiddish slash Jewish humor. Like that's who all the comedy writers were or most of yeah. the comedy writers were. Your show shows is like this, the show that like spawns so many careers because you have Woody Allen, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks. Um, Sitting in a room together, which is hard to go. Yeah, Caesar. Yeah. And then, uh, God, I always forget the other guy, the uh, Arthur, N- not Neil, Arthur Miller. Neil Simon? No. Neil uh, Simon. Neil Simon is the other guy that's in there. So, like, this had so many huge comedy minds at the time, just all riffing off of each other. So, in a way, I kind of wish there was more of that where you could have had, and maybe that is a modern lens of just wanting to see them. <laughs> Well, I think coming up with comedy bits. But that's that's the that was the miss in the comedy room. Like they had the mute guy doing the mm-hmm. pretty good bit of talking through the woman to insult the head writer. But there's not enough of that. And I think that if they had made stronger characters in that room and spent more time in that room rather than kind of cavorting into was it like a dining club so that mm-hmm. Pirato can have sex with a beautiful woman. like you know all that stuff felt really superfluous to me because it wasn't funny enough uh, to combat some of the the inherent hilarity of being behind the scenes in yeah. a live comedy show. Yeah. I also found the main star, King Kaiser, 
so obnoxious. I couldn't understand oh, how well, over I mean, the top he was. Like, it was just too much. That was Sid Caesar, though. I mean, again, that is exactly yeah. what Sid Caesar was like. So that kind of felt true just, to me. Uh, he was a very type A personality. <laughs> deaf, to the, deaf to the world. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, maybe that's the other problem. But, but to your point uh, about Marklin Baker as like being the person we're following, it's going to sound so awful to say this, but we've, I've mentioned before, through no fault of people, sometimes there are TV actors versus movie actors. Yes. And he excelled at being a sitcom actor. He would go on to work on Broadway and supporting roles and did a great, great job. I don't know if he was ever going to be like a movie star, like well, he a wasn't. movie. He disappeared after this. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's what I mean. So you really feel that like, ooh, like there needs to be a little bit more magnetism to this to yeah. be fully paid off. Again, if Mel Brooks had been put into this role, he probably would have killed it if he That's was playing fair. himself. Yeah. Even a Woody Allen, you'd have to tweak the character to be way yeah. more neurotic, but he could carry this, which sucks because it's, yeah, it feels so personal sometimes, but it is personal. Like there are movie actors or TV actors and there's a different... Not just look aesthetically, but a way to approach, yeah, how you perform in those yeah. different scenarios. So that, that's tough. I, I just, yeah, I was underwhelmed. I think the big problem is I don't really care about the inner workings of what 1950s comedy was. I mean, we talked about this uh, with Ellen, uh, uh, Elaine May, Elaine May, and Neil Simon. Like all in 1971, too. Like you sent me some YouTube bits of their uh, comedy. And yeah, he didn't like it, but I thought they were so funny. So. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like, I, I appreciate the intellectual approach to it. I understand that it revolutionized uh, both sketch and stand-up comedy, but I don't care. <laughs> it's, it's so old and it's been reused and developed in modern comedy now to the point where uh, it's unfair and kind of childish in the sense that it's like, well, I don't care about old things, but it, it just doesn't strike a chord with me. So you do live in the past. A past that you were not a part of. Oh, I was not um, a part of. But I know yeah. there's just something to that that I just enjoy. I just like, I like the old timiness of it. Kyle was born as a 60 year old man. Recently, I went to this uh, event. Uh, there was a book that was released here in Calgary where we live. And there's been a, a whole history of Hollywood coming to the province of Alberta and shooting films. And so this whole book project was pairing modern photographers to go out and try and shoot stills exactly the same as the publicity stills at the time um, of these oh, okay. films being shot. So basically from 1917 or 1915 or something like that, all the way up to 1960, hopefully they'll do a part two. That's what their hope is. But reading that book, I was like, oh, I had no idea that Marilyn Monroe came to Alberta to shoot a film. I had no idea Charlie Chaplin was here. I had no idea that this if person Marilyn was here. Marilyn Monroe was here in the 60s. Nobody was here. Calgary, Fair enough. Calgary itself was like 200,000 people, right? I'm just saying <laughs> that that type of history is like so cool to me like oh she was there and she mm -hmm. there's this mountain range that you can go and like the people still have stories about it the, of working with her and like all that stuff i've said it already in this episode but super catnip for me it's like tell me more tell me about the history of working mm -hmm. with jimmy stewart i want to know everything no i guess i just don't give a shit i know because yeah. you don't care about anything uh -huh. the in this film there's there's two i'm sure there's more that even i'm not picking up on but like the head comedy writer of the ready's room who flip-flops back and forth i can't remember his name but he was on mod for like a bunch of seasons and Why then have you even watched a mod because i'm like a huge fan of like all in the family and all Such the norman lear stuff Jesus Christ. <laughs> so <laughs> why are uh, we friends kyle it strikes me it strikes me from time to time i'm like 
should we get along? Oh, uh, I just love it so much. And um, <laughs> and then the, I don't even know what his role is really now that I'm thinking of it, but he's the white haired guy. Right. Uh, the, Mr. The Silver. Showrunner, I, I guess. The Lauren Michaels of that's, this show. Uh, yeah. That's Adolph Green, who is a songwriter. So his partner, Betty Comden. So Comden and Green were this huge writing team uh their most famous one is probably singing in the rain they that's they wrote that song so nice. it's just kind of cool to see him show up and <laughs> just be a character in this movie that's, uh, that's the weird thing it's like i feel like if you watch this movie if you're a comedy fan you watch this in 1982 there would be still some links to mm-hmm. the 1950s and 60s where you could pull that out Sure. Uh, but here in 2022, yes, no, Kyle, no one knows who these people. The language are. is gone, unless you're a nerd like Kyle and you actually uh, are immersed in the comedy lore of history. How would you even know who Sid Caesar is? Why would well, King yes, Kaiser's 100%. character make any sense? It wouldn't. It's a caricature, right, of someone mm-hmm. who is himself a caricature. So too many degrees of separation for me. Could you envision though? You don't think there would ever be an in for you? Or can you envision someone taking this material and being like, oh, this actually does speak to me in a 2022 context? I don't know. They did the Larry Sanders show. We've watched sure. 30 Rock, right? I mean, these are all shows that have, modern, I think, modern taken day, yeah. this and tried to modernize it in a much more successful way, not just from the language, but they have sharper refinement of actually kind of very similar jokes, right? Oh, yeah. You know, what would have been more interesting is not so much whether they can modernize this, but if I had any say in our uh, movie viewing schedule, we should have watched this with the King of Comedy. Because oh, I feel yeah, like yeah. that would have been such a weird combination <laughs> to compare. Yeah, because yeah, I think there are similar intentions to try to critique one in a, you know, very cruel sense about celebrity culture. And this one, which is, I don't know, what would you call this? Is it satirical? I, I don't even know what it is. No, I, I, I actually think there's a much more reverence to, to this in this movie. Yeah. I think they love I think they that love time it. period. Um, but to your point, like a non-comedy version of this story is what Scorsese would make. I yeah. kind of now want to see him, his take on like a 1950s sketch show and this being like, the evils of people and like the machinations of, the, uh, of people. The, the union uh, gangster would play a larger role. Oh yeah. They literally <laughs> throw someone out of a window instead of just a hat at the yeah. window. <laughs> I want to throw you both out of a window. All right. Well, let's do some backstory here and then we'll delve into maybe some other plot points. Um, this movie opened up on October 8th, 1982. Currently is rated 3.5 on Letterboxd. 7.3 on IMDb. Also 62 high. on Metacritic. I do, I will just point out I was actually somewhat surprised at how much this was rated. I thought it was going to be like low threes and maybe like a high six on IMDb. So it's actually yeah. somewhat surprising to me. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it has 96% from 28 that's, critics and 84% crazy. from 2,500 users. I don't know. I don't think so. Because again, that's not saying that the critics on Rotten Tomatoes thought this was a 96% great movie. I'm just saying that's a pretty they at large least rated number. It three out of five stars is what they did. Yeah, but I know you always kind of try to lean on that to explain away some of the strange mm-hmm. bias of Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic or whatever. That's a very high number, Kyle. That's a very high number. It really sure. is. I mean, look at some of the movies that. But there's only been 2,500 users who've rated this. Like no the one user has watched ones this. Always, yeah, that since one's always small. You always got to look at the sample size. But uh, available on DVD and Blu-ray. I was actually surprised that there was a Blu-ray release, to be honest, but it is available on DVD and Blu-ray and currently available to purchase or rent on iTunes or YouTube. Its budget was $8 million and its box office was $20 million, so I made $20 million in 1982, which is about $61 million today if you adjust it for inflation. 
Its plot description from IMDb is, an aging, dissolute matinee idol is slated to appear on a live TV variety show in 1954, and a young comedy writer is tasked with the thankless job of keeping him ready and sober for the broadcast. I also have to say, too, again, another bias. I know I've already stated that I like this era of Hollywood and stuff, but I also have just a very special love affair for the variety show, which doesn't really exist no. anymore. No, like Saturday Night Live is probably the last bastion of sketch comedy. It's the closest, but even that is mostly sketch comedy with a musical yeah. performance. It's not right, like right. comedy monologue, now a musical number, now this thing. Anyways, there is no tagline to this movie, Dave. So we I'm are going to skip the game for this week. <laughs> what would you have written? Why, why would you, what would you have written for this? The, the... Yeah, exactly. It doesn't come to the tongue because this movie's not about anything. Right? <laughs> They're trying to do it live. He's trying to survive. Just do it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it stars Peter O'Toole as Alan Swan, Mark Lynn Baker as Benji Stone, Jessica Harper as Casey Downing, and Joseph Bologna as King Kaiser. This is, I mean, another recurring thing from the, from the 80s and the 70s, too, to a certain extent. Boy is the love interest basically sidelined for the majority of this movie. Like she does really has nothing to do. I I uh, I mean it's it's a weak character. I don't know why it's in it. Right? I mm. mean if you're not going to spend any time in it, we could just skip it. That's that's the thing you, again, my, a bit of a problem I have that I've already mentioned is that I'm setting this up like the big goal is that we have to put on this live show. I'm trying to get the girl. But he already has the girl to an extent. Like it's not like she's trying to rebuff him all that much in well, this she movie. She's rebuffing. I, I don't know. It was confusing to me. I I just don't understand why that's a trope in movie writing. You know, there might be an equation, maybe even for the producers, that if you don't have a romantic angle, they're not going to produce the film. I have absolutely no idea. But yeah. this thing's shoehorned in because it's not necessarily important for the comedy. It does have the one bit where she's so bad at telling a joke, but you could do that oh, yeah. with another new joke writer. Like it's not important yeah, it doesn't have for to be that a to be love part interest. of their, Right. I did like that scene actually. That scene was actually pretty good. But yes. Yeah. It, it that's the thing. Like uh, it is funny in the moments where it's allowed to be funny. I think your point is correct. I think that. If we had a more competent director or just a little bit more of a well-rounded approach to the filmmaking itself, maybe there's a lot more to be salvaged in this. But as mm -hmm. it was, I I actually almost fell asleep several times in between. Yeah. Apparently, Mr. Joseph Bologna, who plays King Kaiser, did you read up on, on how he got the role in this movie? No, I didn't have time. I he, mean, I, um, full disclosure, I watched this at midnight last night, but yeah. So, he was in this movie... Got Ape on the Loose or something like that. This is some weird movie. A but classic. It's a classic movie. But it also starred um, Mrs. Robinson. What's her name? Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate. Anyways, she's married to Mel Brooks. So it uh, was one of Mel Brooks' favorite films. And he actually just randomly met Mel Brooks at a, a diner one day. Some, yeah. And Mel was like, I love that movie. You should be in this movie that I'm producing. And then that's how he got the role. That's that's how he was hired. It's not, it's not that he's even bad in it. It's just I don't understand the character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For what he is, he has fun with it. You can tell he's having oh, sure. a blast, right? <laughs> Which could have been in itself been more funny. Funnier. Actually, in, in a way, I think you can tell like most everyone seems to be having fun. It's just like, oh, I wish I was having I was. fun. <laughs> <laughs> Cinematography was by Gerald Hirschfeld. His top four from IMDb are Failsafe from 1964, Coma from 1978, The Car from 1977, and Young Frankenstein from 1974. So he had worked with Mel Brooks before, written by Not Norman Steinberg and Dennis Palumbo. 
and then directed oh. by Richard Benjamin. These solve crimes? Mm-hmm. No, it's Palumbo, Dave. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, directed by Richard Benjamin. So this is going to go pretty quickly because there's basically nothing written about this movie <laughs> that I could find, at least. In fact, talking about Mr. Dennis Palumbo, he has no Wikipedia page. He has nothing. So I don't Pseudonym, know. maybe? Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's Mel Brooks. Maybe. Maybe he's making be. fun of uh, Columbo. Norman Steinberg, on the other hand, knew Mel Brooks because he co-wrote Blazing Saddles with him, which is a great movie. But he'd go on to write Yes, Giorgio, which is a bad movie, <laughs> which we've talked about this season. Funny, I didn't recognize the name because I'm trying to disavow that we've even watched that, that travesty. So we've kind of mentioned this already, but this is based on Mel Brooks's time working on your show of shows, which starred Sid Caesar, uh, specifically this week where Errol Flynn came in to guest on the show. Although nothing even remotely as dramatic as is portrayed in this movie happened. Um, Benji Stone is an amalgam of both Mel Brooks and Woody Allen. They kind of put them together. Which is, that's also a mistake, right? I think, I think they should have picked one or the other. Like, do yeah, a Woody Allen thing or do a Mel Brooks thing. Yeah, or have two characters. Maybe instead of the, the woman uh, PA, make one of them a Woody Allen, make one. Because Mel Brooks is an exploding volcano. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, Woody Allen is your neurotic yeah, fucking... insular kind insular, of one. Yeah. yeah, those are, you cannot merge <laughs> those two people into one human being. I think that's why I hated him so much. So mm-hmm. obnoxious. Uh, would you say that you hated him as a person? I don't know. It, it's like if Woody Allen did a lot of cocaine all day, that's how he comes, you know, yeah. he's neurotic as shit, but he's also obnoxious. Like he's just yelling at people throughout this film. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to stomach. Yeah. So Brooks stays on as executive producer, leaves the writing team to take this, take his story and make it into a movie for the director. They hire Richard Benjamin who started his entertainment career as an NBC page. Pretty fun. So he knew about kind of the backstage workings of TV. He'd been an actor for many years. I actually do like him as an actor. I've seen him in a bunch of stuff in the 70s, but uh, like roles in the, in, in the Sunshine Boys, the original Westworld movie, among others. Um, but I'll give a shout Brenner out. Yeah. yeah, the old Brenner one. Yeah. Uh, directed by Michael Crichton, by the way. Interesting. I'll Give a shout out to The Last of Sheila, which is a fun murder mystery from the mid 70s that he's also in. Uh, and he also had his own variety show experience because he hosted SNL in 1979. So, like, he does have a pedigree, you would think. He'd been directing some TV stuff. This would be his first feature film. People may know his later work much better because he does Little Nikita, The Money Pit, and Mermaids. Those are kind of his three big mm-hmm. ones that he goes on to direct. So he'll learn to use a cinema camera mm-hmm. after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Correct. Uh, Peter yeah. O'Toole would, of course, be nominated for Best Actor, which I personally think is maybe a bit of category fraud. I don't know if he yeah. would be a lead actor from Supporting this movie. but Best. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, lost to Ben Kingsley, of course. So who knows? Maybe if he had been put up in the Best Supporting Actor category, he would have won. One Best Supporting Actor this year. Uh, we talked about an officer and gentleman. It was um, Louis Gossett. Oh, Jr. Louis Gossett. Maybe that's why they put him in the thing. They thought they could uh, take a run at Ben Kingsley. Who knows? This is a, a topic for the people who like the Oscars. So me, this happens <laughs> I was every year. Say, well, well, this is pertinent to your lifestyle. This happens act- every year where there's at least one actor or actress who gets put into either lead or supporting. We're like, no, like that is not what it is. This year is Michelle Williams in The Fablemans, which she's going up as best actress in that movie. I'm like, absolutely not. You are a best it, supporting actress. Uh, the people, the nominees have already been announced? No, 
but you put yourself up for it. So it's like oh, the, the Academy does not get to decide if you're a supporting or a lead. You put yourself up for like considering me as a lead or considering me as a supporting. For people who haven't been listening, Kyle has already likely planned his Oscar party at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I invite Dave to every year and he turns me down. He says, yeah, absolutely not. Because I have self-respect. That's right. <laughs> you don't want to sp- spend four hours on a Sunday night just no. like listen out Watching on a war shows. Yeah, no, not at all. Absolutely not. Who are you dressing up as this year? Probably a Navi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, this Sunday, I am Neteri. Uh, oh, is that a new race? Going back to Pandora. Uh, which I, I'm going out on a limb here. Uh, my bold prediction is that this year, how it's going to be spun is that the Oscars is, uh, is going to have a return to populism, which is I think they're going to nominate both Avatar and Top, uh, Top Gun for Best for Picture. Best Picture. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're going to be like front runners in the best picture race. So I'll be proven wrong probably, but that's my guess. Top Gun is a stretch. I, I They'll get for sure. I think I saw like visual effects or whatever. Oh, sure. Best picture is a tough one. I mean, I, I bought it. I enjoyed it. I've already watched it like three times. It's fun. Yeah. But it's not an Oscar movie. <laughs> but th- that, that, that's, the, that's the thing, Dave. The Oscars normally love a success story that makes a lot of money like this. So they usually like, I'm trying go to think, for it. Like, is there an action film? That is an award-winning action film. It's like comedies. That's a tough one, right? Like I don't know if I... There must be, but I can't think of one off the top of my head that was just a straight action film that's been mm-hmm. nominated. Yeah, we'll have to mm. think about that. Same mm-hmm. with comedies. Mm-hmm. Like you just get a flat comedy, not a dramedy, not a rom-com, but like a yeah. comedy comedy. Even ones that I like. Can I think of one? I, I like- mean, Red Notice was snubbed last year, so <laughs> I mean... <laughs> here's some bits these like isolated bits that i did actually find funny okay which is like benji stone being like super uh passionate about this guy coming he's like haven't you seen all those movies it's this movie this movie this movie and the guy's like crap 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 that's like which i just felt like it was this podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> i did get that vibe in that first scene and i was like oh yeah there, there's kyle and there's me I almost feel that this had to have been a Mel Brooks line that he suggested, which I, is... I'm pretty sure the more we talk about this, that Balumbo is a pseudonym. Maybe maybe, maybe. Uh, Mel Brooks had some kind of NDA with Sid Caesar, and he's not allowed oh. to be attributed of pulling all of this stuff out. But anyways, keep going, keep going. No, this one line I feel had to have been a Mel Brooks suggestion, which is, dying is easy, comedy is hard. Like, that yeah. is such a Mel Brooks line, so... And th- that one scene where Peter Toole takes Marklin Baker and then they're in that club and then Peter was just watching that lady at the other table I wrote down it's like the amount of eye fucking that is happening is off the charts in this scene like even me I was like yeah I'd go with Peter O'Toole <laughs> like, it's just like death stare well, thing, right at me yeah like his charisma is fascinating mm-hmm. you know I it, I mean talking about uh, cousin Larry and not being a movie actor the people that make it in film have mm-hmm. that thing where you only get 90 minutes, or if you're James Cameron, three and a half hours to basically, I fuck your audience to watch your next film, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, we haven't talked about it yet, but if we were to watch a Mel Gibson film, as controversial and psychotic as that human being is, he's the type of person where even now, if I watched him in a film, I'd be like, all right, well, I'm going to watch it. it, right? Like, I love Kurt Russell. We talked about the thing. Uh, He might be a nutter, but... I watched Santa Claus with my family. I'm like, I love him in this movie. I don't give a yeah. shit. He's a good he Santa works. Claus. <laughs> it's so weird, right? He's got a movie face. It's just 
It's just something different. Cousin Larry doesn't have it. I think it's just so more egregious because, again, when you put him up against Mark Lynn Baker, it's like, oh, one of you is a movie star. Yes. <laughs> and one of you is a supporting character in a sitcom. Well, you know what's interesting? Like, look at, uh, it's not even about sex appeal. Like, Woody Allen and Mel mm-hmm. Brooks are movie Both people. Both have it, yeah. Right? Whatever it is. Like, they're too big for TV. And mm-hmm. so, they're gross and you would never want to bed them. But, oh, well, apparently Woody Allen well, bedded everybody. But, you know, like, they go on a screen and you're like, I need to watch more of this buffoon because they're mm-hmm. just so good at whatever they're doing. Yes, they do. And uh, there's a lot of people that just can't achieve that for whatever reason. This is why we're not Hollywood scouts. We just don't understand the inner workings of popular appeal. Uh, one last thing I just had written down here is like how much 40 years changes something. I guess in this case, it's from the 50s. So we're <laughs> coming up on seven uh, years, 70 years or something like that. But I'm just saying how much like Brooklyn is looked down upon. And now that's like the bougie yeah. part of New York City. Like that's, that's where all the ten years. people go. Yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, in Toronto, there are like you shouldn't live in Whitby or Oshawa. Like Osho is where the GM plant is. So if, when I was growing up, if someone said mm-hmm. they're from Osho, it's like backwater, blue collar, something, mm-hmm. something, something. But with gentrification, that's like a high-end uh, developing city now. You know, Hamilton, we used to call it the hammer. But apparently now it's like when I lived there, it was a desolate wasteland of post-mafia influence, like mm-hmm. boarded up uh, buildings and houses. And now it's uh, this bo- apparently this booming art scene. So Brooklyn uh, was a ghetto. Well, any other thing you want to mention about uh, this movie, Dave? Shit. I mean, I, I don't know, Cal. That's the problem with this movie. It's instantly forgettable. If you're not enamored with 1950s television culture, there's not a lot to chew on. It's clearly influenced by comedy minds of its era. Mm-hmm. So the jokes can work, but they don't always. The cinematography is boring and bland. The camera work is... Uh, Amateurish. Amateur, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what this movie actually is, as we've been talking about, is a testament to uh, Peter O'Toole's star power. Because otherwise, this is not a movie. I would even go so far as to say, without Peter O'Toole, like, literally no one would talk about this movie. No. I don't think you would even come up in conversation. If he wasn't in this, it probably wouldn't have even been in the theaters. We're done here. The machine has told us that we do have to wrap things up here. So let's uh, get into some critics' choice here, Dave. This is the part of the show where we discover what critics thought at the time that this film was released. Um, I can't remember the last time this happened. Pauline Kael did write about this movie and Roger Ebert didn't. Mm, so She's an O'Toole fan. It must be. So I'm going to read her review first and then we'll come back because she loved this movie, Dave. <laughs> She's going senile at this point. I think this is just her era of comedy that she probably grew up with. Oh, that's and true. So, yeah, right? that's fair. So yeah, she writes, fair. the year is 1954 when Sid Caesar was the king of live TV comedy. And this movie is a fictional treatment of life backstage during the days when many soon-to-be-famous writers worked on his shows, brainstorming together. As the brawny, truculent King Kaiser, Joe Bologna suggests an introverted ox, and Peter O'Toole is King's guest star from Hollywood, the notorious womanizing boozer, Alan Swan, who is part John Barrymore and part Errol Flynn. Bologna has an authentic boss comic aura, and O'Toole is simply astounding. Ravaged and liquefied as Swan is, he still has his feelers out. He's always aware of the impression he's making, even when Swan is drunk. He's acting a great actor drunk. This show business farce is the first film directed by Richard Benjamin, and it's a creaky job of movie making, but it has a bubbling spirit. Benjamin is crazy about actors. 
Not a bad start for a director. Bill Macy, Lainey Kazan, Cameron Mitchell, and Anne DeSalvo all have a crack at fresh material. In the tricky role of the youngest of the gag writers, Mark Lynn Baker is a button-eyed and skinny, a snookums. It's an inventive, performative, yet borderline ghastly. And Jessica Harper's scenes don't pan out. But overall, it's a very funny picture. Mm. She swipes at all the actors, which is her thing. That That's she likes the thing. To do. So she sounds like you, except it's 1980, it. so... Yeah, mm-hmm. she didn't have the next 40 years of uh, hindsight. Yeah. But she she grew up in this era. She might have even been in some of those rooms, you know, backstage in some of these shows. Like so. Profiling them, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, there's some nostalgia there in the way she wrote that. Maybe one thing that we haven't talked about, which we should just maybe lean into a little bit. I, I, I guess we've sort of mentioned his like serious moment in the hallway like he's confronting him he's like he's uh upset about the meeting his daughter and like having that relationship with her and he struggles like the persona he has on screen is not the persona he has like it does bring gravitas to that character mm-hmm. and he sells the shit out of it it's great <laughs> right i looked up from my phone in that scene <laughs> so again i understand why people came out of this movie and like oh my god peter o'toole yeah, is yeah. so good again i don't know if like the writing really matches his performance no in most he, of this. i think i mean i don't know enough about him of course as a individual actor like how he would approach his roles but what it appears to me is that when he reads a script he's imagining how he's going to overwhelm it right even sir mm-hmm. lawrence of arabia if you watch lawrence of arabia now uh, he's just uh, like, do I believe in the way he acts that he could actually lead a guerrilla army in the desert? Like he doesn't, he's <laughs> right. not, he's not a Bruce Willis or an Arnold Schwarzenegger. He doesn't come off with that physicality, but every time he's got a monologue in it, of course you'd follow this guy to your yeah. death. He just has this incredible, right? It's not just the blue eyes. Like there's just something about. Well, I was, well I, that's what I was going to say. Like David Lean does like that full white screen. I'm just going to show you his eyes. I'm like, well, okay, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll die for you. Uh, and I think. There must be something about his approach where no matter what the script is, his brain will switch into a mode where he's like, how do I make this as big as possible without becoming a, mm. like a cartoon character? It's also why probably his comedy bits work because he leans into the physical, like when he does that jump roll onto the table, right. and I was like, that is a sprightly old man because that is not a cutaway. Like no, that is not a stunt man that. or whatever. Yeah. Like he knows how to move his body. So anytime he's in it, it's somewhat watchable and everybody else is... A cardboard cutout, unfortunately, even in the comedy. So he's fantastic at it. The Filipino boxer, where did that come from? Oh, yeah. From? What is that about? That's like, really I'm, weird. That had to be lived in. You know, maybe. Oh, actually, wait. I read about this. Apparently, that character is based on, again, something from Mel Brooks's life, like a neighbor yeah. or something had a Filipino had husband be. or it's, something. It just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. It's a little. I don't know. I know you might be the better one to say this because I am a white man. Does it feel like it comes off as racist to you or is it just weird? It's just weird. I mean, there's a moment, I, you know what they're good at? Like the weird food they mention. I don't know. It's just felt a little bit off. What's good is they put, and this is how you know Mel Brooks is involved in it. He's so good at diffusing discomfort by having one of his characters be the racist. So, you know, having the shitty uncle in there being an mm. asshole and then calling him a Chinaman and like doing all that stuff kind of decompresses it because it doesn't have to be something mm. you have to live with. You can just sure. put all of your discomfort on an intentional character. So for me, by the end of that scene, I was like, I'm not upset that there's a Filipino person in it and he's a, like a cartoon character. I just can't understand why it had to happen that way. Why Why yeah, is that character yeah. in it? It doesn't add any anything in it other than it's a lived experience and someone actually had a stepfather who was from a different culture and they thought it was funny. It's all inside jokes. Maybe that's why I don't like it. Yeah. It's all 
them giggling together in a room. And usually when they do that, it's not transferable to the audience. I want to transfer my fist to your face. Well, here's a negative review. I went on to Letterboxd and I found this one by Jim Dooley, who gave it two stars. And he says, yes, I agree that Peter O'Toole has some good moments. That is when he's not playing an over the top drunk. And I even laughed once. It wasn't at an O'Toole scene, though. It was when the mobster played by Cameron Mitchell storms out of an office wearing an oversized prop uh, hat. fat cap. Yeah. Yeah. Frankly, I just don't see what virtually everyone else sees in my favorite year. I think that almost every character is a caricature. This is especially true for Joseph Bologna, who spends most of his time making embittered proclamations loudly while his eyes are looking around for isn't that funny approval. The story sets up a lot of subplots and then only one resolves. And when there is a serious moment, which for me was the only time that the film came alive there seems to be a race to scurry past it for another unfunny comedy moment that's correct <laughs> well dave <laughs> the question we ask every week is does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant no absolutely not on both yeah. yeah it's borderline unwatchable and the comedy context is lost for better for worse right kyle thinks for worse i think for better yeah i mean i'm a no and no i mean i will say Again, I will return to it. I think that there is actually good bones on this. I think there There's would have been a way yeah. to, to make this yeah. work. But I think a little bit tighter of like the narrative that we're trying to tell of like the actual journey of the main character and actually shooting it to allow the comedy to be funny. I think you do that. And at the very least, this goes up to like a, a four out of five. <laughs> Something that's like, it's solid. I don't know if it'd ever be great, but it's solid. All right. Well, we do need to rate this film, Dave. Um, spoiler alert. I'm not giving it a four. But before we Call tell like each three. other... Uh, that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave versus the machine. Sorry, Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel. Uh, and if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie, Dave. Out of five, what are you going to give my favorite year? I've decided to go with a two, mm -hmm. and it's only high because <laughs> Peter O'Toole's in it. I love I, that you uh, think two is high, but okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> well, I, what I mean is I really didn't enjoy watching this movie, except when that man was on the screen. I do appreciate that there are comedic bones in it, but I think it was ex executed so poorly that mm -hmm. this literally shouldn't have been made, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, it needed a little bit more time to bake in the oven, so to speak. I was pretty underwhelmed. I'm giving it a 2.5. Given that, uh, oh, I'm surprised. Point five, Kyle Bump. I thought you were gonna push it to a three. Yeah, I just no. assumed you were gonna push push it to a three. That's gonna average to two point two five, which will be rounded down to a two. But uh, wow, this actually ties with three other comedies. That's so funny. Okay, so do you think this is better or worse than Starstruck? I guess it's better. I mean, Peter O'Toole is better. Yeah, yeah, I think this is better than Starstruck yeah, for yeah. sure. Do you think this is better or worse than Airplane Two? Better. Uh, how about better or worse than Diner? I'm going to put it better just because of Peter O'Toole, but I think Diner is trying more from a narrative. I think Diner is better made, like on a director yeah. level. But yeah, like when I think about Diner, there's not a performance in it that jumps to mind to me. So yeah. 
Okay, we'll we'll be bold. We'll we'll put it above all of that stuff here. Then so two point movie we disliked, but we're putting it above above all this other like stuff. Diner in particular, in particular, is like revered by so many people in just, that era. <laughs> so entering the list at the new number thirty six position is my favorite year, right above Diner, right below Annie. Should probably find out what we are watching next week, Dave. Our final episode of this season of nineteen eighty two. I'm going to push this button here. Oh, you mentioned Mel Gibson here earlier in the episode. We're going to watch a Mel Gibson movie, at least the one they starred in, The Year of Living Dangerously. Mm. Sounds Australian to me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's weird. The name sounds like something I should know, but I have a feeling it's just because that's the type of title that many dramatic films take, Mm -hmm. and I've probably never seen this movie before. It has the lyricism of a James Bond title, but it doesn't, mm. it's not a James Bond title. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, there's something, well, or like something Glenn Close would be in. <laughs> yeah. Right. John Malkovich. Is John Malkovich in this film? It feels like should a John be. Malkovich film. Should be. Yeah. What is that a knocking sound? Sorry, I'm just going to go over to this door that happens to be over here. Oh, there's a door. Good. <laughs> Why didn't <laughs> we just get out? Yeah. We're going to open it. Well, we're still hurling through space, but this is like, I, I guess, a Should supply closet or something. Oh, it's an interior door. Interior. I'm just going to open up and... Oh my God, Dave. It's Dee Dee Hess. Oh, wow. Uh, so I blame you. Yeah. I blame you, Kyle. I want to throw you both out of a window.